In your Bibles this morning, congregation, we would invite you to turn to Micah chapter 3. Uh, on your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1072. We'll be reading Micah 3 in its entirety, but then this morning focusing our attention upon verses 1 through 4 as the text for our sermon. Uh, Micah, his name itself means, who is like God. We remind ourselves that he had the office of a prophet. Uh, a prophet had two tasks. The first was to receive the revelation of God from God, and then the second task related to that, the prophet was to labor and to serve within the covenant people uh, to proclaim that word which he had received from God unto the people of God. So there was both a receptive and a declarative role to a prophet. Uh, and Micah ministered especially to the southern tribes of Israel uh, during the 8th century, you might say, just prior to their being exiled from out of the covenant promised land uh, because of the sins that they had consistently committed, sins especially of idolatry, uh, of worshiping other gods or of worshiping gods according to their own imagination, but also because of social sins. Uh, and we'll hear scathing accounts uh, as God speaks through his prophet, against his covenant people for their social sins. So we read from Micah chapter 3. And I said, Hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh and the cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore you shall have night without vision, and you shall have darkness without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed, and the diviners abashed. Indeed, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin." Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruin, and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Thus far, our reading from God's inspired word this morning. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the term social justice has become quite the term of use over the last years and perhaps you might say decade. But especially within the last couple of years, we have heard much uh, about social justice, and it's certainly not my intention nor my design this morning to give a, a comprehensive discourse on the term and the meaning and the validity of the term and the meaning of social justice. But I do want to identify two 
errors in regards to the phrase social justice. The first error would be that we have an unbiblical idea of social justice. Uh, an unbiblical idea that, that comes about by our own rationalistic ideas or our own humanistic uh, tendencies. That would be one error that, of course, we need to avoid. The other error would be to neglect to appreciate the fact that the Bible does speak much about justice. Uh, both of these errors, I believe, can most safely be avoided by coming with humility to the Word of God uh, and seeking to discern what exactly does the Word of God say. Because if we follow the light of the Word of God, that will enable us to walk very carefully through the, the danger both of an unbiblical idea of social justice, but also an unbiblical neglect of the truth and also of the moral obligation of social justice. Uh, we understand, hopefully, and this has to be a point of conviction, we understand that our God is a just God. Our God is a righteous God. And being a just God and being a righteous God, He would also then desire that His people, His covenantal people, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, be those who love justice, uh, those who seek to do justice within uh, their horizontal relationships within the home and by extension within the community and within the congregation, being followers and being worshipers of a God who is infinitely just and perfectly righteous, we also ought to desire to display those attributes in our interactions with our fellow man. And you can think of the second table of the law, beginning with the fifth commandment, beginning with honor your father and mother, and then moving throughout the remaining commandments. And what are they but Commandments to exercise justice as we interact with our fellow man, as we interact with our parents, as we interact with our neighbors. Uh, but Israel, more specifically, uh, Judah, had a problem. The problem was a lack of an appreciation out of an exercise of biblical social justice. And, and the Lord, well, He is certainly patient, and while he forbears long, suffers long, he does not remain silent forever. And so through Micah, the Lord God addresses the social injustice that had become common within the covenant people of Judah. And that makes up our theme for this morning, looking at Micah 3, verses 1 through 4. And I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? And then what follows, we want to look at that theme underneath, the Lord condemns His rulers for evil. Well, notice first of all the accusation and the condemnation, and then secondly the violation in the condemnation, and then thirdly the reaction of the condemnation. So the Lord condemns His rulers for evil, more specifically for social evil. The accusation, the violation, and the reaction. First of all, then, the accusation. Notice very carefully, although briefly, the direction of the accusation. The, the Lord God Almighty is not addressing the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, or the Canaanites, 
He is speaking to His covenant people. Those people who had been uniquely called, separated, chosen, let out of the bondage of Egypt, who had been given by God's providential work, according to His grace and His mercy, a promised land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a land that was symbolic of a unique position within all of the earth and a unique relationship with the Lord God. You know, it's often very common for us to speak about how the Lord looks upon the nations and how He sees the injustice of the nations and how one day He will indeed rise up in His righteous indignation to judge the nations. And that certainly is true, but that's not what our text is referring to. Our text has the Lord God addressing the church. The Lord God speaks through Micah to the church. And what does he say? He brings an accusation. And the substance of that accusation is given with language that ought to frighten even our very ears. Now you might say, well, this language is somewhat hyperbole. And indeed, it has a certain exaggeration to it for emphasis. As it speaks in verse 3 of the leaders of Israel eating the flesh of God's people, of flaying their skin from them. Our imaginations ought to recoil with horror even as we hear these words speaking about social atrocities. Now perhaps you say, well, these are not to be taken literally. And I agree, not in a literalistic sense, but what was happening and the substance of the Lord's accusation was that individuals who had been appointed to positions of leadership within the church, within the covenant community, were abusing their positions of leadership by committing social injustice and atrocities upon the fellow members of the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, of course, the political structure in the days of Micah is that of a theocracy, Uh, And strictly speaking, we do not live in the midst of a theocracy. Uh, But in this context, uh, there were individuals uh, appointed to the positions of uh, perhaps king or something similar to a king. Uh, And also you can think of the, the priest, a position of prominence and of leadership within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what had happened was these persons, these individuals, uh, were corrupted in an extreme way by a moral corruption that expressed itself as they interacted with their fellow Israelite. And that moral corruption was seen uh, by way of an injustice, especially towards those who were poor and those who were destitute within the nation of Israel. And so justice was perverted. Uh, And there was a sense of oppression of the poor. And all of this was happening within the covenant community that was to be exemplifying social justice. The common people in the days of Micah, the common people were dealt with with extreme harshness by the leaders within the church. And the Lord, you might say, rises up with a righteous anger and indignation. His long-suffering is exasperated, and He begins to speak in very, very powerful and very, very pointed words. We might say, well, uh, what is the application to us today? Uh, These accusations came the 8th century before Christ in a theocracy 
And that is true, but the principles that they reveal apply also to us today, especially within the context of the church. First of all, you can say that the point that is being made as we reflect upon this is that you and I may never forget that God is a God of justice. The judge of the earth always does right. Uh, Now, of course, this also underscores the importance of you and of I and of, of us as the church to understand theology proper. Theology in the sense of who God is and what he is like. And we dare not, beloved congregation, we dare not build a God after our own imagination. We must be bound to the revelation of God himself as is given within his word. Uh, And we also need to appreciate the importance of a balanced biblical perspective and understanding of who God is. In our evening sermons, we've had the opportunity uh, in, in past weeks to consider the attributes of God. And we've underscored the importance of having a balance in the understanding of the attributes of God. Now, in God himself, all of his attributes are one. Uh, But through the revelation that has given us, uh, we uh, discern various attributes. We speak of various attributes. But the important thing here, congregation, is that there must be a balanced appreciation for who God is as he has revealed himself in its fullness. So is God a God of love? Absolutely. And we rejoice. Our hearts ought to rejoice. And that truth ought to motivate us to praise and to worship God. God is a God of love. Is God a God of grace? Absolutely. Is he a God of mercy? Certainly. Is he a God of justice? Yes. He is a God of justice. He loves justice. Secondly, you notice by way of reflection uh, that the Lord God is stirred to anger when he sees injustice in the church. The Lord God is stirred to anger when he sees injustice in the church. And we might go even a step further and say that injustice within the church angers the Lord more than injustice outside of the church. Now that should not be understood as if the Lord is not stirred to anger by the injustice that happens out in the world, he certainly is. But he is stirred to a greater expression of anger when he sees injustice within the church. And so Micah speaks and brings this accusation on the part of God against the people of God concerning social injustice. But I want to look a little bit more specifically in our second point at what exactly the violation was. We might say, okay, but, but what were they doing? What, what is the action that is displaying this social injustice? And I believe if you look at the text, verses 1 through 4, uh, with the light that's also shown by the surrounding context, we can say that what they were doing, Israel, and especially the leaders of Israel, where they were committing acts of social injustice by failing to love their neighbor and fulfill the covenant obligations that had been set upon them. Uh, You could sum it up. The leaders of Israel were not loving their fellow man. They were not loving especially uh, their common fellow man. Uh, Now what exactly is this duty of love? Well, well, love, we say in Scripture, especially reveals this, this bond of 
fellowship, this bond of a relationship. And within that bond of relationship, uh, a, a selfless, sacrificial attitude of service. And uh, the leaders in the church, the leaders in the covenant community, they, they were not to serve themselves. A person is not put into a position of leadership to serve himself or to serve herself. But a person especially within the church, is put into a position of prominent leadership to serve others out of a selfless, sacrificial commitment to those persons because of the bond that there is. And so whether it be a king in Israel, whether it be a prophet in Israel, whether it be a priest in Israel, they were not simply to serve so that they could bring all sorts of accolades or perhaps gain to themselves, but they were to minister, they were to serve their fellow man in a selfless manner. But this, of course, was not being done. Uh, notice uh, this statement uh, of what neighborly love ought to look like in the covenant community uh, is echoed in Amos 5, verse 15. There this instruction is given. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. You can think also of Isaiah 1, verse 16 and 17. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And so this is not just some side issue that the Lord takes interest in. This is a main issue within the life of the covenant community as repeated exhortations are given that we ought to love our fellow man, especially this comes to those who are in positions of leadership towards those who are under positions of leadership, that our great concern must be that we interact and that we do justice, that we seek to Help those who are oppressed. In the words again of Isaiah uh, 1, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow, cease to do evil, learn to do good. And this is simply uh, what is also commanded uh, by all of the commandments in the second table of the law. And here's where social justice becomes very, very, very practical when we continue to emphasize the biblical nature of social justice. And so we might ask ourselves from a biblical worldview, what does it mean to exercise social justice? Well, first of all, begin in the realm of the home. We've often said, and we believe it to be absolutely true, what a person is in their home is what a person is. You can put on appearances out in public. But what you are, what I am, what we are in our home and in the relationships within the home, that reveals what we are as a person. And so biblical social justice in the relationship, think of the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. You want to speak about biblical social justice? It begins with honoring your parents, obeying their good instruction. You'll notice that the failure of social justice is condemned, for example, in Romans 1, uh, where the wrath of God, as it pours itself out upon an unbelieving world, uh, generates this type of action, that individuals are disobedient to their parents. You see, it's one thing to talk about social justice in a very abstract, vague sort of a way, but when you get right down to the practicalities of it, and you can think also, 
uh, of the sixth commandment. What does social justice look like? It, it looks like loving your neighbor, not murdering him. Not murdering him, of course, in, in your actions, but also in your words. And so we dare not speak about social justice while we speak with words of bitterness towards our fellow man. We dare not speak about jo social justice while we harbor enmity and bitterness within our hearts towards our fellow man. You can think also of the command for sexual purity. It's somewhat ironic that people will speak about social justice and yet then turn a blind eye towards all forms of sexual immorality. You can think also of your neighbor's goods. What does social justice mean? It means having a concern also for your neighbor's prosperity. That you deal with him uh, with equity in business transactions. Here again, it's the height of hypocrisy uh, to speak about, yes, we are committed to social justice. And then rip off your neighbor in a business deal. But these are the types of things that were happening uh, in, in Israel. They were speaking about, yes, we are the covenant people of God, and then slandering one another's good name. And the Lord, if we can say it this way, He looks upon this, and He is stirred to righteous indignation. And so He condemns the people of His own choosing. Because they had violated covenantal obligations. The violation was that they were not loving their neighbor, but in not loving their neighbor, they were not following these covenantal obligations. Now, just a quick word about uh, the covenant of grace. When we speak about a covenant, and this definition that I've often used is, is not a perfect definition. There is so much that has been written about covenant theology, so many debates about covenant theology. But for practical working purposes, I like to say that a covenant is, is a bond it is a bond of an agreement, but it is a bond of agreement that is designed to result in fellowship of life. It's not just simply a business contract. It is a warm union designed to result in peace and in harmony and the experience of joy between two parties. And when we put the phrase of grace on there that emphasizes that this relationship between the almighty triune God and his unique chosen special people is established by grace, undeserved merit of favor of God. So it's not as if Israel did something to enter into this relationship. It's not as if you and I do something in order to establish this relationship with God. God unilaterally establishes his covenant of grace through Jesus Christ with his people. But given the establishment of that covenant, and we hear this oftentimes in our baptism form, covenants have two parts. And so there is then this obligation. I often think of it this way in relationship to children. Uh, our children are expected to behave a certain way, not in order to become our children, but because they are our children. And so all of us, we are expected to conduct ourselves in a certain way, pursuing true biblical social justice because we are the people of God. But the leaders who Micah is addressing, they were violating those covenant obligations. They were violating those covenant obligations, thus bringing upon themselves 
the curses of the covenant. And that is why eventually the Lord will eject them out of the promised land. Because in the hardness of their heart, they had rebelled against their covenantal God, and they had performed these acts of atrocities and of social injustices that eventually stirred the Lord to his righteous indignation by which he cast them out. Well, what points of application can we make in relationship to this second point as we transition into our third point? Beware of covenantal presumption. Especially a covenantal presumption that is in use as a cloak for immorality. These leaders, these heads of Jacob, they had a covenant presumption. They just presumed that they were the people of God and that therefore all would always be well no matter how they conducted themselves. And so they used that as a cloak to cover their immorality. They dealt unjustly with their neighbor. They said, it's okay. We're the people of God. And you see sometimes that same ungodly thinking within the church. Ah, I engage in some crooked business practices, but it's okay. I'm a Christian. And when you say it that way, the irony is striking. You engage in social injustice, but it's okay because you're a Christian? You engage in a life of sexual immorality, but you think that it's okay because you have the cloak of this covenantal relationship? And the Lord comes in his indignation. He says, actually, it's the other way around. You were called to be my people. But because you live a life of social injustice, condemnation comes upon you. Well, how does Israel react? That brings us into our third point, the explanation of the reaction. You'll notice by the reaction we're referring here uh, to especially verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord. But then notice this phrase, but he will not hear them. And we read for our text of pardon, Luke 15, that heaven rejoices over the conversion of a sinner. Uh, even more joy than over the 99 who were not lost, the one who is lost who is found. So, so how, do we, how do we understand this? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not hear them. And then it goes on, he will even hide his face from them at that time. Uh, but the Psalms speak about that the Lord hears those who cry out to him and that the Lord will certainly answer those who will cry out to them. Now when uh, the Lord God brings this word of condemnation upon uh, the leaders of Israel, there is a certain cry, but that cry uh, could be compared more to the cry uh, that Cain had. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Uh, or the cry that Judas had as he went in absolute spiritual despair and took the end of his own life. Uh, this cry might be the cry compared to that of Saul, uh, the Saul of the Old Testament, King Saul, as the Spirit left him, as he finds himself trying to make contact with Samuel uh, through witchcraft and sorcery. You see, this cry is not the true and the faithful cry of genuine repentance. And that's why the Lord will not hear. 
And that's why the Lord says, yes, you'll cry in this superficial, hypocritical cry as you experience the result of your social injustice. Uh, but the Lord says, I will not hear that cry. The Lord does not hear in the sense of answer. Of course, the Lord hears every sound that is ever uttered forth from his created realm. But he does not answer with his grace and his mercy the cry of hypocrisy. Uh, there is this clarification. You can think, for example, of Psalm 145, verse 17 through 19. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, gracious in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon. And now listen to this phrase, because this shows the distinction to those who call upon him in truth. To those who sincerely call upon him out of the recognition of their own sin and their own misery. Those who call upon Him with a spirit of humble and genuine repentance. What makes the difference? What made the difference between King Saul and King David? What made the difference between Cain and Abel? What made the difference? Have you ever really contemplate this, what made the difference between Judas and Peter? Now I know you can go all the way back to the eternal counsel of God. And that of course is the right place to begin and you might say the right place to end. God's election. God's free and sovereign decree made the difference between Peter and Judas. But as you get closer to as their lives were played out historically, the grace of God produced a different response to the Word of God in the lives of Peter and in the life of Judas. I think of Isaiah 66 verse 2, and I think that this is the interpretive lens by which we can deal with Micah 3 verse 4. And so if you have your Bible ready if you want to see it in print. Otherwise, just listen uh, attentively. Isaiah 66. I want to begin reading at verse 1, though. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. The emphasis there is upon the infinite sovereignty and majesty of God. And then that infinitely sovereign God says this, on this one I will look. And that idea of look includes the attitude of favor. Upon this person, the infinitely sovereign, holy, and majestic God looks. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. So you can say it this way, the Lord hears the cries of those who tremble at his word. And so that, of course, then brings this application for personal reflection, but also, I believe, for corporate reflection. When I say corporate reflection, I refer to us uh, as a congregation, as Covenant Reformed Church. And the simple point of application is, do we tremble at the Word of God? 
Now, of course, you cannot think about a congregation apart from the individual members who make up the congregation. So while the question's asked corporately, it's also asked personally, do you, do I tremble at the word of God out of a respectful fear of God that has come to recognize that he is the one who inhabits heaven and earth is his footstool? You see, it's good and it's proper and it's necessary to know the Word of God. But just knowing the, the factual contents of the inspired 66 canonical books is not what Isaiah 66 verse 2 is after. Do we tremble at the Word of God? And not of some type of superstitious way that you know, we somehow treat the actual Bible, you know, we put it in a place of prominence within our homes and say, there, look, I tremble at the Word. I, I have my grandmother's Bible and it sits on the coffee table. That proves I tremble at the Word of God. That's not what we mean. Well, if you have your grandmother's Bible on display, that's certainly not wrong in and of itself. But when the Lord speaks, do we tremble? To break that question down, do you, do I, do we have an earnest desire to hear the Lord speak? If we are those who tremble at the word of God, then there ought to be an eagerness to say, Lord, speak for your servant hears. But also when the Lord speaks, do we have an eagerness to obey? Do we have an eagerness that we come with the prayer, Lord, Lord, transform me by the renewing of my mind through the proclamation of your word? That's something of what it means to tremble at the word of God, to recognize that the word of God is the powerful, transformative word. And then we can also ask ourselves, do we tremble at the word of God by responding in humble praise and of adoration? I often think of Moses' interaction with the Lord God in Exodus 34 as the Lord passes by and declares his attributes to Moses. What is Moses' response? He doesn't step back and contemplate in some abstract theological exercise. Do you know what Moses' response was? He made haste, bowed down, and worshipped. Those who sincerely tremble at the word of God are eager to hear the Lord speak, are obedient when the Lord speaks, and also worship when the Lord speaks. And I believe on the authority of Scripture, especially in the text before us this morning, as interpreted in light of Isaiah 66, verse 2, that the difference between those who cry out and are not heard and those who cry out and are heard is whether or not they tremble at the word of God. And so when we talk about social justice from a biblical perspective, there is this question, and also then this exhortation. Do you tremble at the word of God? And then the exhortation is this. Tremble at the word of God. Tremble at the word of God when it comes with warnings, when it comes with correction, when it comes with reproof. And of course, tremble also at the word of God when it comes with promises, the promises of the forgiveness of sins, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eager to hear that word also? And do you obey that word also? 
And do you then praise and worship God as you hear that there is the forgiveness of sins, even the forgiveness of sins of the pride of our hearts and the rebellious nature of our heart? Knowing that the Lord says, upon this one I will look, the one who is of a contrite heart, amen. Our Heavenly Father, we come into your presence and we acknowledge your holiness, your infinite holiness, but we also through the light that is revealed within your word, we look in our own hearts and we see, sadly, examples of social injustice, of the times that we have been disobedient, the times that we have slandered, the times that we have harbored bitterness and enmity within our hearts, the times that we have not conducted ourselves with the moral purity that your law commands. And Father, as your word speaks this morning, we tremble. We tremble in the exercise of repentance, asking for the forgiveness of our sins. We tremble in the exercise of faith, casting all of our hope, not in and of ourselves, but upon the Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that you would forgive us of our sins, and we pray that you would transform us for Jesus' sake. Amen.